Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Christopher Scalia, Director of Academic Programs at the American Enterprise Institute. For this episode, I'm excited to share a panel conversation titled Uplift, Agency, and America's Promissory Note, a conversation about 1776 Unites, featuring AEI's Ian Rowe, the University of California, Berkeley's Janice Brown, Glenn Lowry of Brown University, and Wilfred Riley of Kentucky State University. This esteemed group of heterodox thinkers discusses 1776 Unites, a nonpartisan and intellectually diverse alliance of intellectuals, writers, and activists tackling some of the most challenging and controversial questions in American public life. Questions like, in an age marked by racial division and political polarization, what visions and ideals can Americans share when our national history is for many a source of shame rather than pride? How can Americans find a way forward to prosper and thrive together? And when many thinkers and activists emphasize historical grievance and victimization, who can offer a more positive perspective without ignoring the injustices of the past. Before the conversation begins, I just want to remind you to subscribe to the Campus Exchange podcast and give us a five-star rating to help others find the podcast. If you're a college student, check out the links on our show notes to learn more about AEI's work on campuses across the country. And be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at AEI for Students. And now to the conversation, moderated by Ian Rowe, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute focusing on education, upward mobility, family formation, and adoption. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, Agency, to be published next year by Templeton Press. So good to see everyone. Looking very much forward to this conversation today, not only because of the opportunity to discuss 1776 Unites, but also be also because we get to speak to the rising generation. So welcome to all of the college students that are viewing. You know, our hope today is that this discussion can actually be helpful to you. We know that you're trying to make sense of the world that you are inheriting. And our hope is that this discussion can help you maybe most importantly, help you decide what principles do you want to embrace to improve the world that you're inheriting? It is safe to say that our country is going through a national reckoning, not only on issues of race, but class, gender, sexuality. But often this reckoning seems to be one-sided, that unless you know you subscribe to a certain orthodoxy, your point of view might be canceled, dismissed, and this trend seems to be particularly present on college campuses. You know, it's this worldview that posits that America is not actually a land of opportunity, but rather a land of oppression, that anti-Black racism is literally embedded in the DNA of the country, that the, the country's founding principles themselves were false, quote, when they were written, if you listen to the New York Times 1619 Project. That if there's a disparity in any outcome by race, then there's only one explanation. It must be the cause of that disparity must be racism. And as a result, this ideology kind of posits that there's essentially no change 
in the conditions of Black people since the worst days of slavery. So that's kind of a dominant narrative that we think is out there. And, you know, today I'm very pleased to be joined by three panelists, all phenomenal in their own right, who I think will provide an alternative, an empowering alternative. First, we have Dr. Will Riley, who's a professor of political science at Kentucky State University. Dr. Riley is awesome in many, many contexts. He holds a PhD in political science, authored some great books, including Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo. And, and Dr. Riley, I love when you, you, you simplify things by just sharing data that seeks to often debunk compelling narratives or narratives that are out there, but are, that are, are not that compelling, especially after you share your data. We're also joined by Just Janice Rogers Brown, who served as a U.S. Circuit Judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and before that, Associate Justice of the California Supreme Court. Really honored to have you, Judge Brown. Thank you for joining us. And finally, Dr. Glenn Lowry, who's an economist, professor, author, many accolades throughout his career, you know, at the age of 33. Dr. Lowry was the first African-American tenured professor of economics in the history of Harvard University. He's the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Social, Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. So welcome. Welcome, Dr. Lowry, Dr. Riley, Judge Brown. Thank you. Full confession, we are all part of this initiative called 1776 Unites, which defines itself as a movement to liberate tens of millions of Americans by helping them become agents of their own uplift by embracing the true founding values of our country. And, you know, it's led by primarily Black activists, educators, scholars. We acknowledge that racial discrimination exists and we are all working towards diminishing it. But I think these words are important. And, and Glenn, Dr. Lowry, I'll, I'll go to you first, and then Judge Brown, and then Dr. Riley. But I think these words are important. 1776 unites dissents from contemporary groupthink and rhetoric about race, class, and American history that defames our national heritage, divides our people, and instills helplessness among those who already hold within themselves the grit and resilience to better their lot in life. So, Dr. Lowry, I'd love to start with you about what compelled you to get involved in 1776 Unites in the first place, and why, why is this an important initiative that this voice is being represented now? Well, two things. There was a push and a pull. The push was the distaste that I felt in reaction to the initiative at the New York Times, the 1619 Project, to recenter the national narrative around the, the fact of African enslavement, a fact without any question, a momentous fact to be sure, a morally disturbing sequence of events, but not the defining central narrative of our country. So there was the push, but there was also the pull of Robert Woodson, the great leader of the Woodson Center who inaugurated this initiative and with whom I've been working off and on for decades to further the mission of the Woodson Center. I wanted to be involved because Bob was uh, leading the effort. I mean, let me just say why I found so distasteful the tone of the 1619 Project at the New York Times. 
There's no denying that slavery had a huge impact on the shaping of the American Republic coming out of the 18th century. But there is also no denying that the founding of the United States of America, I'm talking about ratification of the Constitution, was a world historic event. It was an advance forward for freedom. It created the context within which emancipation could ultimately be realized. It is the foundation on which we stand. And we Black Americans are quite privileged people. We're we're not the victims of systemic racism of a racist, white supremacist country. We're rather the privileged recipients of the opportunities that the freedom established by the founding of the country has made possible. We're the richest people of African descent on the planet by far. We can determine our own futures. So I wanted a vehicle for voicing my own mild outrage at what was afoot at the New York Times, as well as solidarity with what Bob Woodson was trying to do which is bring some people around the table to speak out in a coherent and articulate way against it. Thank you. Judge Brown, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And I know you've joined a little bit later, but what compelled you to become part of this initiative? Bob Woodson, who is very much part of the moving spirit of 1776 Unites, likes to tell this anecdote about Martin Luther talking to the artist who was going to paint his portrait and saying to him, Basically, don't make me handsome, paint me warts and all. And so that idea, Bob often says this, is we know that America is not perfect. We know that no human institution is perfect. The only way to have a perfect country is to have one with no people in it. So um, (laughs) that's never going to happen. But the reality is we know that it has now been Positive is one that looks at America as uniquely, irretrievably racist, bad, that has an entirely negative history. And that, of course, is simply not true. And so what drew me to this was, one, the the idea that we might talk about this in a way that accepts that the bad part was really bad. Slavery was you know, a very serious wound, but also that the founding of this country was something marvelous, miraculous, something new in the history of the world. As Glenn said, it was the first time, the first country that focused on self-government and the ability of people to determine their own destiny. So that seemed very worth defending. I also found myself appalled and very distressed to see the kinds of things that were happening in the country, the erasure of our history, being told that all of these things that have happened that are part of who we are and what we've experienced should be made to disappear because some people had decided that that was not a history that that they could embrace. So all of those things made me think that it was important for us to try to balance the new narrative in a way that speaks to the truth. There's a wonderful biography by Jason Riley of Tom Sowell, and he starts out by saying what Dr. Sowell says is if you want to help people, you tell them the truth. And I very much subscribe to that idea. All right. 
Dr. Riley, would love to hear your thoughts. And also, you know, being a, a college professor, so you're, you're interacting with kids all the time who may not be hearing this kind of dialogue or point of view. What compelled you to join 1776 Unites? And why is it particularly important for young people to know that even something like this exists? I think that's a great question. What compelled me to join 1776 Unites other than, you know, the charisma, the personality of Bob, which everyone's described. We're almost all personal friends with Bob Woodson. But the the primary motivator for me was the idea that the other major ideology that's sort of contending here is simply wrong in a way that's empirically provable and that's harmful to black kids. So if you listen to, for example, the 1619 School of History, I guess you could call it political science to some extent, it's almost invariably just doomsaying. So the idea is that American history has been an endless pattern of oppression with us as African-Americans doing nothing effective to respond to it. And that this is, if anything, getting worse today. It's more hidden. It's more subtle. There's a book out right now that's in the top thousand or so on Amazon called Legalized Genocide or Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People by a prominent attorney. And many, many people believe this is going on, that living in America as an upper middle class black person in 2021 is a sort of unending nightmare. And I I think that this narrative is ridiculous, for want of a better word. Even in the past, there was strong, proud black resilience against real oppression. If you look at the free black regiments that fought in the Civil War, some of the things that happened under Reconstruction, the civil rights movement itself, who spearheaded that. But today... The claim that the United States is a terrible place in which to exist or which to be a person of color is simply not true. I think that one of the great hidden stories in society today is that minorities are actually doing fairly well. The African-American personal income, obviously strengthening households is a priority for us and for all other groups in this country, but is around 80 percent of that for whites before you adjust for things like age and region. Asian-Americans who also have a long history of oppression here out-earn whites, uh, outperform both whites and blacks on most educational metrics. And I think both you and I will get back to that during this conversation. But uh, going on with this, if you look at the top 10 income earning groups in the USA, virtually none of them are Caucasian. Indian Americans are currently in the number one spot, Filipino Americans, Taiwanese Americans. There's generally a very heavily black group on that list, South Africans or Nigerians. And what you find if you unpack why people are successful, why this multicolored band of countrymen is doing so well, is that three or four things, how you perform on aptitude tests, is there a father in the home, where you choose to live, are you, are you moving to seek work, that's what predicts what you're earning and how you're doing in life. So I don't, I don't think any fair-minded person, I mean, the judge said eloquently, obviously, slavery was a great wound, a deep cut in this country. I don't think anyone would deny that, for example, more black people or even, quote unquote, POC, a term I dislike, but are, are poor today because of past history or past oppression. No one, no one denies that. But the goal there, if we know what the path to success is, is to promote to black kids, to African-Americans, and for that matter, to everyone else, the things that actually make you successful in life, hitting the books in school keeping your family stable, so on down the line. And to me, this ghost hunting for imaginary forms of racism, the white gaze and so on, is a distraction from that. And it's a negative distraction. The more time my kids put into protesting in a city that's largely and often successfully integrated, the less time they are doing those things that will produce those positive results. 
quick final sentence here. You you asked as a college professor, you know, how do you, how do you engage with the kids? How do you communicate these ideas to them? I enjoy where I teach. I lean right, but I'm I'm pro black. I see no disconnect whatsoever between those two things, and I don't think Martin Luther King or Booker T. Washington would have either. But so I get along well with the kids. I, I play ball on campus. I think I'm a, a popular professor. But I will say, when I bring absolutely mainstream center-right resources like Thomas Sowell, for that matter, like the men I just mentioned into the classroom, one of the things that's shocking is that kids will very often tell me, this is the first time I've heard this half of the story. For years, it's been Howard Zinn, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram Kendi. And you're telling me that there are these people, Jason Riley, Coleman Hughes, Ian Rowe, on one or two occasions, that have opened, uh, openly offered to debate these people and have written major op-eds and best-selling books that I've never heard about them. Why have I never heard about them? And when you begin to answer that question, you start telling the other side of the story. Excellent. Well, you know, it's just, just so interesting. All three of you talk about not only the sort of reframing of history in America as this land of oppression... But there's this almost determined effort to make this connection to present day that black people essentially are powerless. And, you know, we've, we've mentioned Nicole Hannah Jones a couple of times. She wrote an 8,000 word piece in the New York Times magazine, I think it was last year, where she was making her case for that the only way that black Americans could succeed was if the government deployed a tri- multiple trillion dollar reparations program. And in this essay, She says, quote, none of the actions we are told black people must take if they want to lift themselves out of poverty and gain financial stability. And this is what she said, not marrying, not getting educated, not saving more, not owning a home. None of that can mitigate 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. So just think about that for a second. She says literally none of these actions. So if you were a college professor, Dr. Lowry, and, and ironically, by the way, I believe Nicole Hannah-Jones has done each one of those things in her own life <laughs> and, and probably is achieving prosperity as a result. But when you hear something like that, it's almost like they're, there's a, they're on a mission to convince young Black kids and, and maybe kids of all races, I don't know, but young Black kids in particular that they're powerless to overcome. Like, How do you respond to that? Well, I respond by doing what Will Riley suggests we do, which is to look at what the facts are. I mean, I know where that comes from. It comes from people like William Darity, the economist at Duke, who touts the racial wealth gap and who has papers out there saying that the racial wealth gap, this is the disparity at the median between the net worth of black and white households, won't be affected if you control for, and then there's a long list of things, household composition, work history, financial literacy, et cetera, et cetera. This kind of talk is belied by the facts. It's belied by the facts of immigrants who come and who advance up the ladder very rapidly through entrepreneurship and human capital acquisition and whatnot. It's belied by the success sequence that you're always talking about, Ian, where you observe that if people complete school get a job, marry, and then have kids, they're almost zero probability that they're going to be poor if they do those things in that order. It's belied by the dynamics of the income disparity of African-Americans, which as, again, Will has pointed out, shows that personal income to Black people, men and women, relative to whites, has improved considerably over the last half century. And it also offends common sense, doesn't it? Hard work won't do anything for you. Starting a business is a, is a road to nowhere. 
saving your money and investing in your kids' education is a, is a waste of your time. There's nothing that can be done until white people hand over reparations to black people for plunder. And don't get me started on the false narrative of plunder, as if this great country, this $20 trillion economy, this massive engine of economic dynamism was built solely and primarily on the backs of the stolen labor of slaves. Of course, slave labor contributed to it. So did the massive immigration flow from Europe. So did the building of transcontinental railroads. So did the accumulation of massive capital investments that permitted industrial growth and development. So it is an elaborate wine being offered as an excuse to avoid the existential necessity in life of getting busy. That's the only way that Black people are going to advance. We need to get busy. That's hard work. Some people don't want to do it. Wow. Well, Judge Brown, I mean, what's again, it's so fascinating because, again, you know, what is it like someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones or other successful Black people who represent this kind of ideology? It seems like they're actually working hard in their own lives, right? It seems like they're actually embracing the ideals of strong families, free enterprise, hard work, education, and yet somehow they do not want to preach what they are practicing in their own lives. What do you think that motivation is to almost hide, hide things like the success sequence or the data that Dr. Riley outlined? What, what is that motivation, do you think? I'm not sure what the motivation may be. I'm always astonished and dismayed to hear this message of utility and ceaseless victimization coming from people who are themselves an example of how to succeed. Almost every one of the people that's delivering that message to our children are people who are phenomenally successful in their own right. And as you have said, are doing all of the things that they tell people won't make any difference. That's an incredible contradiction in terms. I'm old enough to have been around, born in the South during the era of de jure segregation, when things were much more difficult than they are now. And I never, ever received that message from my family, my parents, my grandparents, anyone in our neighborhood. They would never have said, just give up. You can't make it. There is no way for you to, to win. In fact, they would say, okay, life may not be fair. That's not an excuse. You are still required to do your best to achieve excellence, to be the best that you can be. I wish I understood the motivation of people who want a whole group of people to feel powerless and feckless and to feel that their situation is hopeless. I really don't understand that. The only thing I can speculate is that there has to be something in it for people or they would not be inclined to say these kinds of things. There is no logic to it. Their own lives disprove it. So why would they say it unless it benefits them in some way? But that message was not the message that we received in a time when things, it was much more difficult to achieve what they are achieving. Well, we are starting to get questions from our audience, and not surprisingly, they are looking for solutions. So, you know, one student from Brandeis, who's a social policy graduate student, 
is asking, how do you get this other side of the story? You know, Dr. Riley, that you were saying, like, you know, is it is it curricula? You know, is it anti-racist curricula? So where would the average college student get exposure to these kinds of ideas? I think there are two different levels here. First of all, over the past four or five years, as you've seen, quote unquote, the great awakening in society, to quote Zach Goldberg, you have seen a very coherent response from normal citizens to this. So, I mean, there are a great number of groups. Uh, 1776 Unites has gotten a great response from my students and I think from America as a whole. I'm also a member of a group, as I think Glenn is, a group called FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I am. Which, yeah, which takes the bold position of opposing both traditional racism from often the right and sort of new progressive neo-racism. I don't really think there's any shortage of content in the books of Tom Sowell, so on down the line, that presents this sort of alternative perspective on the country or on Black history. And I will note that until pretty recently, perhaps the mid-1990s, the idea that America was flawed but great was the mainstream perspective. I mean, what we've, what we've seen change since that point hasn't really been the facts known to science. It's been the predominant narrative in the media and academia. But I, I do think that gets to kind of the deeper problem, which is the composition of the media and academia to some extent. I mean, when you look at the collegiate campus, the the most recent figures I remember from Econ Live were about 93 to 7 liberals and left-leaning moderates to conservatives and libertarians among the professoriate. That's almost identical to the breakdown in the media, which goes back to Pew 2004, and then their redo of that survey. So the, the real question is, what do you do when almost everyone in an institution favors one of two, to some extent, equal perspectives that have been feuding for decades? If you have that 93 to 7% bias, I mean, I certainly think people like myself, Glenn, Ian, the judge and public appearances, so on, can, can present the other side of what I believe reality to be. Changing the institutions is a tougher one. I mean, we saw Peter Bogosian retire yesterday and go into private business consulting. So I, I think right now there's a tendency on the part of a lot of highly intelligent, heterodox people to set up alternative institutions. I strongly support that, love the major think tanks. I mean, obviously, we're working with AEI here. I do think that we also do need to be working with grad students and so on to try to get people back into those mainstream institutions to, for want of a better word, integrate them. Doing that is a tough fight, though. Keep producing content, keep sharing what you know to be true. Just data itself is extremely powerful. The, uh, the 90 to 10 slant is uh, difficult to overcome for right now, but I have hope for the future. Another question, how can African-American students from poorer socioeconomic areas empower themselves to become more successful if they often lack hands-on support in their home or if they face negative peer pressure? And Judge Brown, I'd love to get your perspective. I think sometimes the left or people who are, who are more progressive accuse those on the right or more conservative of saying, well, you should just lift yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, if you're poor, it doesn't matter. You should just you should just be able to do that. And it seems like that's that is a fair criticism if that's what was being said. So what would you say to the students asking this question about if you are, you know, if you are born in circumstances in a single parent household or lacking resources? Well, I had the great good fortune of being born into a family that was all about helping me, promoting, 
an interest in education, in reading, in learning in every way that I possibly could. But I recognize that not everybody has that. But if you don't, you still have the library, you still have the ability, you know, to educate yourself, to find resources. And you don't, you know, one thing I always think of is I have been mentored by some of the greatest minds in the world. I found them in the library, in books. <laughs> so that, that is always an option for you. It's one that is available to you even when you have nothing. It's also the case that there will always be teachers. I started out in a school that had almost nothing. I was born in Alabama. It was a very poor school system for everyone. For Black people, it was even worse. But the thing about that was that the teachers there who couldn't teach in other places, many of them had advanced degrees, but they absolutely gave no quarter. We were supposed to learn. We were going to do the best. They were interested in excellence, not excuses. So they lit from their own personal libraries, their own books. And so I think that you will always find people if you look for them who are interested in helping you, who will help you find resources, who will share their knowledge with you. So that might be a way to start. And you only need one person like that to get you going. I think there's some very practical things you can do. You can have a realistic plan about what you're trying to achieve in your life starting at 16, 17, 18 years old. Community college is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Vocational education is not a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. You should use your time effectively. I mean, realizing that there's, you only come in this way once in the years between 18 and 22, when people are ordinarily in college, is, are absolutely critical to development. I think the success sequence is good advice, people. You should choose your associates wisely. The people you hang with will have a big impact on how you think and what you do. Don't waste your time with people who are not going anywhere. I know that sounds like an old man giving a kid an advice, but it's actually pretty good advice at, at the end of the day. So, I mean, I, I think there must be an elaborate success sequence series of observations about things, practical things that people can do. Have a plan. Have a concrete vision in your head about how you put one foot in front of the other. Don't mess around with people who are not going anywhere. That's a choice you get to make about whom you associate with. Don't waste your time. Before I give folks a definition of the success sequence, if, they don't, if they're not familiar with it, one thing we don't often talk about, Glenn, is faith. Where would you put faith in that, that litany of, of recommendations that you just made? Well, this is personal, right? It's religious, and not everybody is going to subscribe to any particular thing that you say here. It can be a very powerful anchor and centering in a person's life. Not only the institutional resources and support that you get, from affiliating with a congregation, a church community, or whatever, but from the internal resources that one gets of discipline and self-command and self-understanding of modesty and humility and perseverance and an ability to stay hopeful despite the vicissitudes that will visit us. So, I mean, I don't want to tell anybody what to believe. I can only give the testimony that I was saved by my encounter with Jesus Christ. Wow. For those who are not familiar with this terminology called the success sequence, it's essentially a label assigned to a series of decisions that are typically made in your younger part of your life, you know, 24 and above, 24 and below, that if you finish your education, even just a high school degree, 
than a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if you have children, marriage first. That series of decisions amongst millennials, 97% of the people who followed that series of decisions in that order have avoided poverty. And something like 70 plus percent are in the middle class or above. And so it's pretty overwhelming. And then amongst the Black community, it's about 91% who follow those same series of decisions. In fact, a few years ago, there was a study done about Black men. You know, the narrative about Black men, we're an endangered species. But, you know, to Dr. Riley's point, some of that data is, you know, that narrative is overblown. But there was a study done about Black men making it in America. And the data showed that for those Black men who were following the success sequence, and in addition, there were a couple other elements. One was having a faith commitment. Two was sometimes military involvement. But this idea of a sense of personal agency, meaning that they felt they had some control over their own destiny, those factors played significantly into the life prospects of these Black men. And I think these are the kinds of data stories, Dr. Riley, that we, I think all of us are desperately trying to to get out there to college students and beyond. So anti-racist curriculum sounds good. That should be the answer, right? Who could be against anti-racist curriculum? So we've gotten a couple questions from saying, isn't that the answer? And so, Will, I know you've talked about anti-racist. So anti-racist on its label sounds good, but what is anti-racist curricula in practice based on your experience? Yeah, I mean, that that's a generally uh, neo-racist curriculum would be my answer. Anti-racism in the Ibram Kendi sense is something that's very important <laughs> for people on kind of the our side of this debate, heteradot, center-right, 1776, whatever you want to call it, to understand. So the definition of racist in the writings of Dr. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo or Bell Hooks is essentially any system that produces any disparity in outcomes that's statistically significant among racial groups is racist. Because the only two possible explanations for that would be one, genetic inferiority, which no one on either side wants to claim, or two, some kind of hidden, subtle bias deep within the SAT or the system of policing or whatever. The reality, of course, is that's nonsense. We've talked about some of the intervening things here, you know, age, marriage, region, crime rates are generally higher in the South, so on. But that, that is the point. That's the, that's the argument that any system that doesn't produce perfect equality is racist. So anti-racist curricula tend to be based around three ideas. The first is the Richard Delgado idea that, quote unquote, racism is every day. The USA is an institutionally unfixably racist nation. Two, the evidence of this unfixable racism is these disparities. There are very few tests where everyone finishes equally. And three, the solution is equity. So whenever you hear about something like an equity curriculum, equity in practice, coming even from that legal background, means proportional representation or close. It's the idea that you achieve equality when they're the exact proportional number of blacks, women, et cetera, in every field. So most of the anti-racist curricula I have personally reviewed as a college professor or executive include most of the things that we've been critiquing here on the panel today. So there, there are some exceptions, Chloe Valdry's theory of enchantment and so on. But I would prefer to go back to fact-based curricula, non-racist curricula to some extent. I think anti-racism means a certain thing in modern political life. Yep. Well, amazingly, we are almost near the end of our session, unbelievably. I want to make sure I leave 
a minute for each one of you to just give a parting statement. And I think I'd love for you to just focus on, you know, what should be the message to our college students today in terms of, you know, again, making sense of this world that they want to inherit and how they as young Americans or kids from around the world, they should improve things. What is it about the founding principles of the United States of America that they should hold on to that are worthy of defense, as you said, Judge Brown, that are worthy of investing, that are worthy in defending, and that are worthy of adopting in their own personal lives. What would you say, and, I, and Judge Brown, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you if you can, you know, there are a lot of kids who are inherently optimistic, but are hearing in a narrative that is very pessimistic and aren't sure what tools they have at their own avail. What would you say that they have still have the power to achieve? Well, I would still say what I was taught, which is that you can do anything that you want to do if you are willing to work hard enough to achieve it. That is part of what's wonderful about America. I know this is considered a microaggression now, but this really is a land of opportunity. You really can control your destiny. You really can achieve the things that you want to achieve. I think America brought something amazing into the world. It's the first regime that is really focused on self-government. It's based on an idea. All men are created equal in the sense that no one is born to rule. No one is born to be a slave. The only just government is a government that operates with your consent so that you are controlling what happens to you. At least that's the idea. And these principles, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, protection of property, that people should are entitled to the protection of what they have earned and what they own, those are principles that I think deserve allegiance and devotion and not derision. And so I hope that what students take with them is to have the courage to explore that, not to let somebody else tell you what your country is about or what the declaration means, but to read those things for yourself, to study what the founders were talking about, why that's what leads to freedom, and make your own decision. Don't have this fed to you, and always pursue the truth and have courage. Have courage. Wow. Well, Dr. Lowry, final parting thought? I have a dream that one day my children and all of our children will live in a country where they're going to be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. You know, somebody said that we are not our race. It's only one feature of our humanity. It's not the most important thing about us. In fact, it's not a very important thing. We're one people here in the United States of America. We are one people, Americans. Barack Obama said it. I only wish that while president, he had practiced more of what he preached in that respect. We're one people here. Our problems will not be resolved at the United Nation. There is no cosmic court of justice. We have to get together with our fellow Americans around the table and figure out how we're going to live together. And I don't care what the issue is, if it's wealth, if it's health, if it's war and peace, we got to solve these problems together. All right, Dr. Riley. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of hard to follow the uh, opening lines of Lynn's final piece there. But basically, if, if I were giving one piece of advice to those listening, especially to younger people, it's just 
Remember that for all of these debates in the background about things like racism, what role past history plays on your life? Does that affect where you live? What role minor contemporary prejudice plays in your life? Anything else, perhaps from the the fringe wing of the right? 90% of what you do in your life is going to be up to you. I mean, you just read the items off of the success sequence, and they are incredibly simple. Complete your high school education. Go on and take a job, any job, and apply for better jobs while you work that. Wait until you are married, or as a not particularly religious man, I will note, past age 25, to have children, and so on down the line. These are the things that determine, to a large extent, whether you're going to have a poor or a working class life on the one hand, or a happy upper middle class life on the other hand. So as you listen to these debates from figures including ourselves, and as you develop your opinions about the level of prejudice in the country and so on. Don't forget that the main thing that predicts who you're going to be in life is what you do for yourself every day. And most of that is not incredibly difficult. That is the key piece of advice I would give to a young man or young woman, any human being. Outstanding. Well, let me let me just close by saying, you know, de Tocqueville, when he did his observation of America, he wrote, quote, the greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation but rather in her ability to repair her faults, end quote. I always find that just an incredibly compelling statement because it just suggests that within our founding documents, within our founding principles, within the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, all the amendments, is that the tools of self-betterment, the tools of self-renewal that exist within those founding principles and documents also exists within each one of us. And I think that's what you're talking about, Dr. Riley, that you have power. Mm-hmm. When people are telling you that you are powerless, you have to reject that ideology. And I think you're hearing from some pretty amazing people that you have the ability to determine your own destiny. And that is, you know, part of the inspiration. That doesn't mean pull yourself up by the bootstraps. There are lots of institutions that can help you get there, but you can make what you want out of this precious life that you have. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe to the podcast. If you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the link in the show notes. Finally, to learn more about upcoming events for students, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at AEI for Students. We'll see you next time.